We're in a series called Explore God, and we're addressing some tough questions that non-believers and skeptics ask about the Bible, God, faith, spirituality, all of those things. And today, I've been asked to answer or address the question, my life is good, so why should I care about God? My life is good. Why should I care about God? Have you ever asked that question? Has somebody that you've talked to responded to you with that kind of response? What we're really talking about under this idea of my life is good, why should I care about God, is the problem of spiritual apathy. We live in a culture that's becoming increasingly disinterested in the things of God. Have you noticed? A recent Barna survey has revealed that the majority of people living in the margins of faith now don't have an explicit reason for doing so. Simply put, they're not interest. They're not interested. Interest in God is declining in our culture. In fact, all around the world, Stephen Bullivant would agree. He's written a book called Nonverts, like converts, but nonverts. And he describes a nonvert as a person who uh, basically is just not interested in God. He describes that in the United States, there's a non-religious revolution taking place. More and more people are simply identifying with no religion at all. Nonverts are simply not interested in God. And did you know that there's a new social movement in our culture, and they name themselves ex-evangelicals? Ex-evangelicals are people that have left churches a lot like ours, and pursued a life of atheism, agnosticism, or some of the more progressive forms of religion. So there's a pretty high likelihood if you're living in the world with all of these people and more and more people becoming disinterested in God, you and I are going to bump into some of these folks along the way. And when we do, it's likely that we're going to have some responses like the question we're asking today, my life is good, why should I care about God? In fact, I think that a lot of these people that we talk to that have these kinds of responses are probably quick to respond to our concerns or our thoughts or our invitation for them to come and explore God with the same kind of instant dismissal that people have when they see junk mail come their way. And we all know about junk mail, right? <laughs> We get a ton of it. Quick little story about junk mail. So I, I spoke a number of times at a church out of the area. And at one point in, the, in these speaking opportunities, the pastor asked me, hey, do you, do you require an honorarium? And I said, no. I said, I'm happy to do this. My church supports me. I'm kind of seen as a person that goes out in the community and, and, and can share the gospel. And so, I'm, no, I'm, if, if churches want to do that, that's great. We put a little vacation fund, my wife and I, and, and so that's great. But there's nothing needed. So I, I spoke a few more times. But as I was speaking, I started getting letters from this church. And, and I opened the letters, and the letter would say, Welcome, Larry Vold. We're glad you're here. Here are some ways that you can get involved in our church. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, that's nice that they're doing this. But each letter kind of showed me that they, the, whoever was sending this letter didn't really understand who I was. Somewhere along the line, I signed a, a registration card with a prayer request, and now I'm on their mailing list forever. And I thought, no biggie. It's a clerical error. It's no, no problem. But eventually, 
I started taking those letters and I wouldn't even open them, just throw them in the trash. (laughs) Well, that's the way sometimes I think people that hear our invitations, as gracious as they might be about coming to church or being a part of spiritual things, I think they look at us and our message kind of like junk mail, quickly dismissed without a second thought. But, but sometimes the things that people once brush off with disinterest become topics of genuine curiosity later on. This is true in the spiritual realm too. There are individuals that, and maybe they're out there, but they're also in here, who at one point were turned off and said no and was not interested in God, yet somewhere, somehow, at some point, they experienced a change of heart. That's good news and should be applied to what we're talking about here today. So if you're picturing someone that you know whose life seemed good and therefore is not interested in exploring God, I hope today's message will equip you to see how a change of heart is possible. And I also hope that all of us can sort of drop the pretense a little bit here today and be willing to admit that we, as followers of Christ, also struggle with spiritual apathy. Do I hear an amen out there? I mean, if we're really honest, sometimes the things that we see in our culture is a mirror of what's happening in our lives. And so there's something for all of us here today. Now, in fact, I kind of think like uh, the, the, the onset of the NFL season almost coincides with spiritual apathy among believers in Christ. <laughs> we start arranging our service schedules around game times. Now, I'm sporting a basketball jersey today in silent protest of the NFL <laughs> because I don't have to worry about being distracted for another month. If you're a basketball fan, you know what I'm talking about. All right. We're all distracted. Some of us are distracted by relationships. Some of us are distracted by temptation. Some of us are distracted by the pain that's in our lives. Some of us are distracted because there's just a lot of good things going on. Distraction, distraction, distraction. And all of it leads up to this thing called spiritual apathy. So here's what I want to do today. And you can find your way to 1 Peter chapter 3, where we're going to kick off this morning. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. If you've got your outline, you're already going, oh my goodness. We've got a lot to cover this morning. But we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, and here's what we're going to do today. I want to take you on a little journey for the next 30 minutes or so, and on this journey, we're going to do three things. First, I'm going to offer you a Christian apologetic for the reality that people say, my life is good, why should I care about God? A Christian apologetic, and that's going to be really fast, but there's going to be five things that I hope will help all of us see that If you think you're not interested or don't need God, I'm hoping that this apologetic will answer some things for you and maybe give you a little more openness. In the second movement of our sermon, I'm going to offer an urgent invitation because there's someone here today, perhaps, or someone watching online, or you're going to talk to someone this week who needs to know God's invitation to them, regardless of their response. And that's what we're going to talk about for a little bit in the second part of the sermon. And then lastly, we're going to zero in on on a personal challenge, a personal challenge. This is where the magnifying glass comes down on you and me. And we have to ask ourselves some pretty tough questions. And I hope you'll just track with me through that time. So that's the journey we're going on this morning. We're first looking at a Christian apologetic. 
then an urgent invitation, and then finally a personal challenge. Are you with me this morning? All right, so let's dive in. We're going to look at this Christian apologetic, and it's found right here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, familiar passage of Scripture. It says, and we'll put it on the screen, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, this is an amazing verse. It's a verse from which we get actually the word apologetic. The, the Greek word for the phrase in your English translation that says, give the reason, is apologia. It's a word that we literally get, apologetic or apology. Now, most of us look at the word apology as saying we're sorry about something, but the original intent of the word apologia in the Greek is to give a reasoned defense, a reasonable defense for whatever the argument was. And so it's not like a, I'm sorry, it's a have you considered this? And so this is where we begin today. I want to give you five reasonable responses to the question of why should I care about God? Okay, spiritual apathy. Let's zero in on it. Number one, Apathy towards spiritual things is not always what it appears. That's the first thing I want you to see. It's not always what it appears. Some people appear to be unconcerned about spiritual things when deep inside there's a lot more going on. I don't know how many times I've heard people tell me this story, and someone just recently said, you know, there was a person at work that shared the gospel with me, and this person was a Christian. They're telling me their, their story. And they're saying, this person would share the gospel, and me and my co-laborers, my co-workers, would always shut them down, ridicule them, make fun of them. But this person said to me, and I've heard this many times, but deep down inside, I wanted to hear more. But I was afraid to ask, or I was ashamed to ask. And so like the Nicodemuses of our world, we show up in the darker places, the places of, of quiet and, and uh, confidence or confidential areas, and we ask people the harder questions. That's why we, and we say this a lot at Three Crosses, we need to pay attention at intersections. Do you know what I'm saying about that? When we have a conversation with somebody that just seems trivial, it doesn't seem to matter much, pay attention because at intersections of life, whether you're at work in your neighborhood, if you're uh, out in the community somewhere, if you're at church, you might come across somebody who's got a lot more going on deep inside than they're letting on to. And even if they're pushing back a little bit from what they might be hearing, there might be greater interest than you think. In fact, here's the verse of scripture. I love this verse, Romans 1.20. We'll put this on the screen. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That's a powerful verse. And I always try to remember that when I'm sharing my faith story with somebody or I'm out in the community or doing something that I hope is bringing the light of the gospel into someone's life because what I realize is that every person, regardless of their admission to it or not, is processing with the reality of a God who is known and a God who has made his power seen in this world. And that's just under the hood. And so when people sort of throw out that, I'm not interested in God, just think in your mind, ah, you, you, you have more understanding about God than you're letting on. That's the first thing. Number, number two, 
Apathy towards spiritual things stems from a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Our self-sufficient lives produce an illusion of being in control. And that sense of being in control seems to edge God out of our thinking and our need to care about who he is or what he wants in our lives. But think about all the things that happen that remind us that we're not in control. This is an illusion that we have. Think about it. Wildfires, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, war, sickness, disease, death. That's just skimming the surface of things that remind us that we're not in control. We think we're in control. We have this illusion of being in control, but we're not in control. Unbelievers, and sometimes believers too, seem to think that they can take control and therefore they don't need God. We see this all through the Bible. One passage that brings this out with great clarity describes the unbeliever, and it uses the descriptor wicked. In the Old Testament, primarily in the Psalms, the contrast between the wicked and the righteous is really just the contrast between believers or unbelievers and believers. The wicked described in Scripture are simply unbelievers, people that have not bowed their knee to the sovereign God of the universe. And here in Psalm 10, we'll put this on the screen, watch this, verses 4 through 6. In his pride, the wicked, or the unbeliever, does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and God's laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. This is a description of an unbeliever in terms of thinking, my life is great, why do I need God? Number three, apathy towards spiritual things is often based on favorable conditions that are only temporary. In other words, anyone who lives by the, my life is good, why should I care about God, doesn't realize that life is good until it isn't. Sooner or later, everyone experiences something that rattles the assumption that life will always be good. Think of that couple that's sitting in their living room with their hands covering their faces. They're living amongst, uh, in a beautiful house. They've got a cabin in the mountains. They've got two very beautiful cars. They've got a great health care, a great 401, they've got everything they could possibly have, but they're grieving the loss of their 10-year-old child. And everything that once seemed great and wonderful now is utterly meaningless. Now that's a, just a made-up illustration, but I can tell you by experience, I've sat in living rooms like that, so many times, I don't even know how many times, where suddenly the reality of the loss of someone that was precious to them eclipses anything that you thought life was good about. And I know that that's really going to the dark place for a second, but I guess what I'm hoping is that all of us would realize that the Scripture is true when it says, for example, in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14, we'll put this up too, When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other 
Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. What that means is there's a perplexing reality that no one in the world can figure out what's even going to happen tomorrow. And so life is great until it isn't, has to be owned by people. Psalm 89, 48 says, the psalmist says, what man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? Wow. Now, these are, these are heavy things, but this is part of our Christian apologetic. We know that, uh, that life and the good things of life are really temporary, just like we know as believers in Christ that the hard things in life are also temporary. Praise the Lord. If you're going through a really tough season right now, then at least you can be grateful that there's a better day coming. Amen? Number four, apathy towards spiritual things is short-sighted. Here I'm asking the question, is it possible that one's view of the good life doesn't compare with how good life could possibly be? Could there be a better life than the one that's being imagined? C.S. Lewis, the great theologian and writer, says this in his book, The Weight of Glory, and we'll put this quote on the screen. Listen and follow along. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis says. Let's think about what Jesus our Lord said in, in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters in, uh, through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it what? Abundantly, more abundantly. This is the amazing truth that a person who thinks that life is good may have no idea of how good life can possibly be. King David wrote in Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, quoting Isaiah 64, 4, and he says, no eye has seen nor no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the great what God has prepared for those who love him. I hope, beloved, that that encourages your heart today as a follower of Christ. And even if you're suffering in this life as at the highest pitch that it's ever been, we can say with the Apostle Paul that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will follow. This is the Christian hope. And this is what is part of our apologetic to the question of my life is good, why should I care about God? Here's the last thing in our little apologetic. Apathy towards spiritual things is based on opinion, not justifiable belief. It's based on opinion. It amazes me that people are willing to build their whole philosophy of life on mere opinion. Uh, here's, here's the example of this. Let's say you think, you say to me, well, you know what? I've got this neat little experiment. I'm going to go up on my roof. It's about 50 feet above the ground, and I'm going to jump off with a, a rain umbrella, and I'm going to float to the ground. It's going to be awesome. Come on, watch me. 
I say, no, 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 don't do that. Because you might have the opinion that you're going to be okay, but I've got some justified belief. You know why? Because I believe in the law of gravity. And it doesn't matter what you think. That's just opinion. If you jump off that roof, it's likely that you're going to end up as a fatality. That's a justified belief because it's based on law and precedence. Stephen Garber, in his book, Visions of Vocation, says this, and this is a hard quote, and I'll try to explain it, but this is so powerful. Moral commitment precedes epistemological insight. Everybody say epistemological. I bet that's the first time you've ever said that word. What this means is, we, he says, we see out of our hearts. We commit ourselves to living certain ways because we want to, And then we explain the universe in a way that makes sense of that choice. And that's what people are doing when they say, my life is good, I don't need God. Because my moral choice is preceding my epistemological insight. Epistemology is the study or the the discipline of investigation that distinguishes justified belief from mere opinion. Epistemology. That's what we're doing here this morning, by the way. We're forming an epistemology. A justified belief system that isn't just, it's just like, you know, like you hear people say today, this is my truth. That's not, epistem- that's not a good epistemology because I have nothing to counter with if it's just your truth versus my truth. There is one truth, and the truth that comes from Scripture is not to be debated or questioned. But I can choose a moral course in my life and then define my whole life around that moral choice. And that's what many people do. All right. That's why Augustine's long ago question still rings true. You cannot really know someone by asking, what do you believe? It's only when you ask them, what do you love? That you really understand who a person is. So the person that says, my life is good, why do, I, why do I need God? Is essentially saying, I love my life, and I can't imagine loving anything or anyone more. But it's all based on their opinion. So if you are a science person, and you believe in scientific laws, then it's not hard to step over into the reality that there are spiritual laws that govern the universe. And as soon as you get on track and aligned with the spiritual laws that God gives to us in his word, which starts with things like, you shall have no other gods before me, that's a great place to start. God is the one and only who deserves all of our surrender, all of our lives. So that's, that's a little uh, Christian apologetic. Uh, you could probably add to that. It's not super profound, but I hope this helps. And I hope for someone here today that maybe is in that argument, that maybe you just open up your heart a little bit more with some openness about why you should care about God. And if you run into somebody that holds that view, then have these five things in your heart as you talk to them. Okay, number two, an urgent invitation. This is so big, so important. And the verse I want to look at here is Isaiah 65, 2 where through the prophet Isaiah, God says, look at this, we'll put it on the screen. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walked in ways not good, 
pursuing their own imaginations. Wow. In fact, in that text, it goes on to say, God lists the sinful insults of his people, which were as constant as, and longstanding as his own gracious overtures to them. For example, verse 3, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, who say, verse 5, keep away, don't come near me. There are a lot of people in the world that are just basically saying that to God. Keep away. I don't want anything to do with you. All right. Two things I want to say as an urgent invitation to anyone who holds that view. Number one, number one, are you ready? You don't care about God? Well, I got news for you. God cares about you. This is the beautiful reality. The invitation is that God cares about you. doesn't matter if you don't care about him. He still cares about you. That means he created you. He loves you. He has a purpose for you. He's got a plan in your life. He wants to redeem the broken, ugly stuff in your life. He wants to change you for the good. He wants to bring glory to his name through your life. He's not even begun to show us what he can do if we would just turn our hearts to him. God loves you with an everlasting love. This is the message to the person who's bristling and saying, I don't need God. I don't care. Why should I care about God? Because number one, he cares about you. Second thing is this. If you don't care about God, you need to realize you're on a path leading to eternal separation from him. If you don't want anything to do with God in the end and for all eternity, guess what? You'll get your wish. C.S. Lewis reminds us that hell is simply God giving us what we want, a life without him. All of their lives, some people say to God, go away, leave me alone, like a child sometimes. I'm a parent. If you're a parent, you've got little children. At some point, they're going to say, leave me alone. And we grow up and we say things like that to God. Just leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, you may have your wish. People are not taken to hell or sent to hell. They go there by their own choice, says C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. And that's really true. I mean, how, how would someone ever want to go to heaven? And isn't it interesting? We live our lives, people live their lives in total objection and rejection of God. And it's outward, and everybody knows it. They die, and everybody at the funeral says, he went to heaven. I think that that's extraordinary, that our hearts are so inclined to believe that we would go to a place led by and loved by the one who made it and live our lives in abject rebellion to that one. <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. But this is the reality of our, uh, of our depravity. We push God away, and then we blame him for everything in our lives. And that's why the psalmist is so clear in this, and we'll get to a couple more things. Quickly, here's the, here, the invitation is simple. Trust in Christ and be saved. Trust in Christ and be saved. That might be you today. Trust in Christ and be saved. All right? So that's the second little part, urgent invitation. The invitation came right now. Give your life to Christ. You know somebody that needs Christ? You should be telling them, doesn't matter that you don't care about God. He cares about you. And do you realize you're on a path 
that will lead to eternal separation from God? Have you ever said those words to somebody? First of all, you should have relationship with them before you say something like that to them. They should know they're loved by you. That doesn't mean go out and paint this on a cardboard thing and stand on the streets, you know, like a lot of people do. I think it's an important message and it's an urgent invitation, but you better have some relational clout. And that means this person knows that I love them. All right, the third little part of our journey today is what about us? Well, a personal challenge. And there's three things I want to talk about really quickly here. Three things. Boy, you guys are doing really good. You've been listening really fast today. (laughs) Number one, be understanding and compassionate as you pray for those who believe they found the good life apart from a relationship with God. Be patient. Be understanding. Be compassionate. Listen, unbelievers are not our enemies. They're under the spell of the enemy. They don't know any better. In fact... Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in chapter 2, verse 14, the man, without the, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You say, well, wait a minute. Romans 1 says that God's put a knowledge of himself in everybody. That's true. But to really understand the nuances of what it means to walk with God, have a relationship with God, <laughs> clueless. People don't know. They don't understand and only until or unless the Spirit of God opens the eyes of somebody to see their need for Him, we just got to be patient and love on them. And that's hard work to be patient with people who you're just saying, why don't they see this? Be patient as you pray for them. Number two. Oh, let's, let's look at one more scripture. Psalm 49, verse 13 and 14 This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. Psalm 49 is a powerful scripture that deals with this cavalier attitude of, I don't need God. You could look at that later today. The whole chapter, 49, is just amazing. Number two, live your life in a way that demonstrates to unbelievers what the good life really is. Two simple questions here. Number one, is our example compelling to unbelievers? Do the people that live around us, work around us, see us in the community, do they see something about us that say, man, you know, like I, I don't want to be a religious person, but man, that person has got something that I don't have. They've got a zest for life. They've got a countenance that is joyful. You know, they're just, there's something about that person And so I have to ask myself the question, am I living in the way that is compelling? 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. In other words, there's a lot of people out there that are ignorant of God. You know why? Because the Christians that are around them are not living a distinctly Christian life. And the second question is this, and this is a harder question, but are you perhaps, are we perhaps at times envious toward unbelievers? Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Goes on to say, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they're free from the burdens common to man, they're not plagued by human ills. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And it wasn't until the psalmist says, and then I went into the house of God and I remembered their end. Suddenly I got a new perspective. And that's what we're doing here this morning, by the way. This is just kind of a reorientation of the perspective that we need as we're living as salt and light in this community, in this world. And lastly, and here's, this is the hardest thing of everything I've said so far in the message. And this is to us as believers. Repent from spiritual apathy in our own lives that comes from, from uh, a false sense of security or self-sufficiency. You know, one of the most troubling passages in the, in the New Testament, I think, and there's a lot of them, by the way. <laughs> if you read your Bible, you ought to be troubled at times. <laughs> but Revelation 3, in verses 17 through 20, Jesus says this to a church, the church at Laodicea. He says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, I will counsel you to buy from me silver or gold refined by the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Listen, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen to the, the words of Jesus. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in. Beloved, this is the gracious, patient invitation of our Lord Jesus in speaking to his own people. You think you got it all together, and yet we live in our pride and our self-sufficiency and we walk around with sort of a swag that says, I don't need anything in sex. Sometimes I don't even need God. It's the way sometimes we live. And I don't know about you, but I want to live differently. I want to ask the Lord every day to remind me that while I think sometimes I'm rich and I've got all these things, I need to be focused on the fact that really my spiritual condition oftentimes is pitiful. But hear the voice of Jesus. Here I am. Here I am. Open the door. So I told you about that church that sent me the junk mail. And somewhere, I don't know, it had to be several weeks after the last time I was there, another letter came. I tossed it in the trash. But for some reason, later that night, I thought, hmm, I wonder, you know, I should just go look at that. So I, I got the letter and I opened it up. <laughs> And to my surprise, it was an apology note from the church office, the business office, saying, we, are, we apologize for the delay of sending you an honorarium, and so please accept this, this offering as a thank you for the many times you spoke. <laughs> and it was a sizable check. I thought, wow, I almost threw that away. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I opened it up. I wonder if there's some people that might just take a second look 
and open up God's gracious invitation because you loved them, because you were patient with them. Maybe today that's you. God's giving you the opportunity today to open his voice for you again. Would you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Lord, we need it. Thank you, Father, for bringing us to this place today. And Lord, I think it's fitting that all of us today, including myself, would repent of our self-sufficiency and that we would put a posture in our hearts of bowing our knee to you and saying, Lord, would you fill us up and use us because there's a hurting world out there. And it doesn't matter if people blow you off, Lord, because you love them and you're going to keep loving them to the last minute of their lives. And so I pray for the person who needs to come to you this morning. Give them the grace to believe right now. If that's you, open your heart, trust in Jesus and be saved. And for the person, any of us this morning that need to say, Lord, I repent. I open the door, Jesus, come, fill me again.